Christ who did a work for us. We seek the Christ who has a worth beyond the ages, and we seek a Christ whose words bring contentment and peace. All of these names are found to be true in what Jesus Christ did as he walked this earth. Unto us, unto mankind, unto our race, the Bible says, a child is born. Unto us, God gave his only begotten son, Jesus would tell Nicodemus. These five names, as we have studied them in the past, represent divine attributes of who Jesus is, of who God is. We call them the non-communicable attributes or the attributes that reside only in God himself. I have preached a message on these five names before, and this series will not be on the attribute aspect. But I should at least note them so that we understand the Bible and we understand what we're talking about. The name wonderful that Jesus is given speaks to his omnipresence. It is truly beyond our understanding that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at once. The next name that is given to him is Counselor. The Bible here teaches us of his omniscience. He knows everything. He knows you specifically and he knows what your needs are. The next name that we come to is the Mighty God. It speaks of his omnipotence. God is all-powerful. There is none like him. There's none that can attain unto him. The next name is Everlasting Father. It speaks to the eternality or the unchanging nature of who God is throughout all of time, which leads us to the last, and that is the Prince of Peace. Only a God who is the first four can say, I am the Lord, I change not. It speaks to his immutability. He can give a peace that passes all understanding. He can be asleep in the midst of the storms while the apostles, while humankind is fretting over the waves and the tumult. He is the God of all peace. This is who we celebrate. This is who we put our attention on. Now, of course, we know because we come to church and Sunday after Sunday, morning after evening and on the midweek, we try to open the word of God and teach and tell the truth of the word of God over and over again. We who gather here celebrate the Lord Jesus every day of our lives and every day that we come together. But the world, the world right now is paying attention to this one, Jesus. We celebrate the Christ child because he is all of these names yet... He became flesh. The creator became his creation. The phrase, his name shall be called, that Isaiah uses here, means that his character and his conduct will actually prove these names to be true. What Isaiah writes 750 or so years before Jesus Christ would come to this earth, what he writes is what the character and the conduct of this Christ child would be. He would be wonderful. He would be a counselor. He would be a mighty God. He would be an everlasting father. And he would be the prince of peace to those in his life and to those who will believe on his very life. Oh, the wisdom and the work of God that he could do such a thing. So we begin this morning with the wonderful. The Hebrew word wonderful carries the idea of something that is both miraculous and marvelous. It is something that is beyond our full human comprehension or understanding. He shall be miraculous. He shall be marvelous. You could easily read this word to say. We literally stand in awe of who and what Jesus is according to this word. So let's consider the miraculous and marvelous Jesus this morning. First in our outlines, there is the miracle of his incarnation. 
Now, some of you think this is something you put in your drink or in your coffee. Carnation. It is not what we're talking about. We're talking about the incarnation of God. You know, during the Christmas season, the whole world puts their attention on Jesus. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we ought to know a little bit more than the person who rides the bus with us or the person who shows up in the office or works in the factory with us. We ought to know something more than our neighbor who never darkens the door of church. Do we know what the incarnation of Jesus Christ means? Because if you do, you know it's wonderful. You know that it is part in keeping with His name. By incarnation, we simply mean that God took on human flesh. This reality is what makes Him wonderful. John chapter 1 and verse 14 is the definitive scripture that tells us that Christ came incarnate in the flesh. The Bible says, and, we, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John then gives a little parenthesis or a, an additional thought to enhance the main thought. He says, And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. He says that one who came to dwell among us, who was made flesh, was full of what? Grace and truth. One of our many hymns that we sang this morning was the one that I requested. I wonder as I wander out under the sky how Jesus the Savior did come for or with the intent and purpose to die. For poor ordinary people, like you and like I, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. While Israel missed the wonder of the Messiah, we who believe in Jesus Christ this morning have not, and we should not continue to see Him as wonderful. He is altogether wonderful in the miracle of His incarnation. And it begins, letter A, in our outlines with His wonderful humanity. To be made flesh means to be made human. Now, some of you who are deep theologians say, Pastor, you're just stating the obvious. And the answer is yes. My responsibility is to expose the truth. You should be able to go out to your coworker and explain that you worship a God who was made flesh. He became human. Well, there's a lot of old deities and gods who were part human or had a piece of humanity or they were a blended, a hybrid of humanity. But only Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. In the great theological circles, we call that his hypostatic union, meaning he was 100% God and he was 100% man. The Bible teaches us of his humanity and is that humanity which makes him wonderful for us. There's plenty of biblical support for Jesus' humanity. The gospel tells us of Jesus' human physical needs. They included such things as sleep in Luke 8, 23, food in Matthew 4 and verse 2, physical protection in Matthew 2 and verse 13 and John 10 and verse 39. There are other indications of His humanity that we find also written in the gospels. He sweat. When he was on the cross, he perspired, we might say, in Luke 22 and verse 43. He bled physical, real blood in John 19 and verse 34. There is no human, more human nature than to bleed them when you're cut. He proved his humanity, not just in the physical needs, in the physical realm, but also in the emotional setting. In John 15, 11, we find that Jesus had joy. He had sorrow in Matthew 26 and verse 37. He had anger in Mark chapter 11 and Mark chapter 3, excuse me, and verse 5. And he wept in deep sorrow in John chapter 11 at the grave of Lazarus. 
Jesus himself would refer to his nature in John 8 and verse 40 as that of a man. And after his resurrection, both the apostles and the disciples who were gathered and met him, every person that saw him knew that he was fully man. To believe that Christ died to redeem you and that his resurrection is what regenerates you or gives you new life is no harder to believe than to believe that Mary's egg was fertilized by the Spirit of God. Now, I'll be careful as I explain the fullness of His humanity this morning for little ears. But simply to say, there is always a process to how babies are made. An egg is fertilized. And it brings forth at that moment of conception, new life. While it sounds fantastical sometimes for us to hear, perhaps even far-fetched, it is true. It is the wonderful way in which Jesus became flesh. It's what makes Him altogether wonderful. The Creator entering His creation by not violating any of the laws that He established for biogenesis. In other words, God didn't violate the own laws that He established for where life comes from. You could go from Genesis chapter 1 and verses 1 and 2 and see that the Spirit of God moved upon the waters of the deep until the New Testament and find that the life-giving source of God is, is when His Spirit moves. The Bible tells us as much. We might ask the question like Mary did. How can this be? How can this happen? I mean, Pastor, I don't want to be at work tomorrow. I don't want to talk to my friends at school. I don't want to have to say to them, yeah, I don't really know how it came to be, but I was told that an egg was fertilized. Just take your Bible and look in chapter 1 of Luke. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 26, we begin reading there. The Bible says, And the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God into the city of Galilee, named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her her mind what manner of salutation this should be. You and I would have been in the same spot. What is he talking about? That's the old King James way of saying, What? She was surprised. How am I highly favored? And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. That is the full definition of grace, by the way, finding favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt call his name Jesus or the Savior of our people. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. By the way, this is a direct connection to our passage in Isaiah chapter 9. Then said Mary unto the angel, what all of us would have said unto the angel. How shall this be? Seeing I know not a man. We all know where babies come from. You parents can go home and tell your kids about the birds and the bees. You're welcome. But we can't miss that fact during the Christmas season that Jesus Christ was fully a man. The angel answered and said unto her in the next verse, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. 
and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing or that seed within you, which shall be born of thee, shall be called what? The Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she also hath conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. Notice what God then says about Elizabeth's womb and about Mary's conception. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. With her question in verse number 34 answered, she operates then in faith. Mary places her faith in God's word the same way we place our faith in God's word. This morning, the same way that you have had revealed to you that Jesus Christ is your Savior from your sins, that Jesus Christ came from heaven to this earth. The same word of God that reveals that to us is the same word of God through the messenger of God that was given to Mary. Her faith was no different than our faith. It was taking God at his word and believing That faith, by the way, led Mary to rejoice in the salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. And it ought to lead each of us who has put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ to rejoice as well. Here's what Mary sang, beginning in verse number 46 of that very same chapter. She says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath holpen or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed Forever, Her faith was settled in that this was the promised Christ child. That he was the wonderful one spoken of in Isaiah chapter 9 and in verse 6. And it all hinged upon his incarnation, his becoming flesh, he becoming a man. Jesus, our wonderful Savior, had to become a man. The humanity of Christ ought to drive each human being to rejoice in the salvation that God has both designed and provided for us. Just as Mary sang, we this morning should be singing, He hath regarded our low estate. To say that the Creator became a creature is something too wonderful for our mind to even comprehend. We cannot make sense of it because we are finite beings. But to have the infinite choosing to be wrapped in flesh so that He could die for our sins. It takes us to the letter B, which is his incarnation is wonderful in its humility. When we think of the humility of Christ, we always think of the passage in Philippians chapter 2. And in verse number 5, where it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. 
being found in fashion as a man or in the lifestyle and mannerisms of a man because he was a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Why did he have to become incarnate? Why did he have to take on human form? He had to humble himself so that he might die for us. That's why the next verse makes even more sense. He goes on to say, wherefore? Or because of what I just said, Paul notes, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Why? To the glory of God the Father. There is no greater understanding of his humility than in his birth. Here's an artist rendering of what they call a caravansary. Anybody stayed at a caravansary? (laughs) Neither have I. I've seen pictures of them. This is an artist rendering of what the inn would look like in Luke chapter 2. When we talk about the humility of Christ coming to this earth, this is what you must look at. The upper rooms would be where the people would stay. Some of the caravansaries would be four square. They'd have four walls. And the interior would be where the cooking and the cleaning and the people would live. And perhaps there would be facilities. But on the outside where the little curved stalls are, that's where all of the animals would stay. That's where they would come and they would be placed. And so when they go to the innkeeper and the innkeeper says there's no room in the inn and they are told to go stay in the cattle stall, this is what we're talking about. It brings new life to Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, where the Bible tells us, She brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. That is, clothes that were lying about in that caravansary stall. And laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn itself. Jesus, born in a cattle alcove, creator humbly lying with the basest of his creatures. The shepherds indeed related to this Savior, did they not? So can you and I. If Jesus Christ had come as a monarch's child, in the eyes of man, what true condescension would that be? Yes, The infinite divinity would still be wrapped or robed in finite humanity. But to the beholder, if he had come as a monarch's son, there would be no condescension at all or no clear distinction of it. They would think he came to rule in power. But to lie helplessly in a cattle stall in the backwaters of Bethlehem, this was humility. It's not just that the creator became one of his creatures. It's that he came into the world at the most exposed position with nothing. It's what makes the appeal of Jesus Christ so powerful. He didn't come to dominate your life. He came to deliver life to you. Listen to the writer of Hebrews in chapters 1 and 2 of that great book. He first in chapter 1 explains the lofty stature of Christ and then compares it to the lowly estate that he held as a man. Here's what it sounds like in chapter 1 of Hebrews. The Bible says, God, 
who at sundry times and in diverse manners or in different ways spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom, or by Jesus, also he made the worlds, who, Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. I often say when I teach this Bible verse, that phrase express image, if you pull out your phone and you click on an icon, the picture shows you the program that's inside the phone. Jesus was the icon to show us all that God was really like. He was the icon. He was the express image. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he, when Jesus had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he, said God the Father at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, whom he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, And let all the angels of God worship him. In other words, to whom else did God the Father say any of these things? No one. What the writer of Hebrews is doing and what we must understand is the stature and position of who Christ was before his incarnation was glorious. For he was the third person or a second person, I should say, of the Godhead. And of the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits and his ministers of flame of fire? But unto the Son, he saith, thy throne, what? O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou, Jesus Christ, shall remain. They shall wax old as doth a garment, as, and as a vesture thou, shalt thou fold them up. They shall be changed, but thou, You, God, art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Jesus is, was, and always will be God. The Father declares it in this passage. And as God, He created and sustains everything. Now consider the humiliation when you read chapter 2. You come to verse number 9, and the writer is writing to the Hebrews who missed their Messiah, and he says this to them, but we, we see Jesus. The writer of Hebrews is saying, we put our eyes on him. We know what he actually looked like. We know what he actually did. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels. Why? For the suffering of death. Oh, he's crowned with glory and honor. That he, by the grace of God, should taste what? Death for every man. For it became him, or it was necessary for him, for whom are all things. What a statement. Even in his humility, everything that's created is still for the glory of Jesus Christ, which ultimately is to the glory of God. For it became him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory. To make the captain of their salvation, you could put your name in there, to make the captain of Kyle's salvation or your name's salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth, that's God, and they who are sanctified, 
that's you and I, are all of one. How do we take on a divine nature? It's only because of Jesus Christ. That is the wonderful truth about Jesus. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brothers or brethren, saying, I will declare thy name. Jesus is here speaking. The writer is saying what Jesus says. I will declare thy name, O Lord, God the Father, unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, notice what he says. Will I sing praise unto thee? Do you know when we met this morning and we sang and when we preach and we spend time in fellowship together... Jesus Christ, because he came in the flesh, because he lived perfectly, died vicariously, rose victoriously, because he did those things, he stands in our midst and sings with us. You can't come to church bored anymore. You can't say, well, I mean, I'm kind of into this Jesus thing. Friend, you can't just kind of be into it. Jesus sings to his Father in the midst of his church. That's us this morning. What humility that the perfect God would want to dwell amongst imperfect us. Think of the last week, the last seven days. In your mind right now, recall, and if you need to confess, do it, the unholy, unhealthy, Unhappy thoughts that you have had. And consider that those thoughts are still not able to keep the love of God from wanting to dwell with you. That is the incarnation of Jesus. Doesn't mean he agrees with your sins. Oh no, he wants you to forsake them. Because you have been forgiven of those sins. But he is content to dwell with us. That is beyond, that is so wonderful, it's beyond human words. So we can just say his name is wonderful. God is not a cold and distant God. He is right here in our midst. He tasted death for every man so that every man might be saved. The old hymn writer George Shea said this in his song, The Wonder of It All. Perhaps he said it best in the last line of the first stanza. He says, but the wonder of wonders that thrills my soul is the wonder that God loves me. That's what the incarnation teaches. The miracle of the incarnation makes Jesus wonderful. But so does the marvel of Emmanuel. There is a marvel in who he is, Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 and verse 14, just a few verses before where we read this morning in Isaiah 9. Isaiah writes there, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. The wonderful nature was far more than just that Jesus came in the flesh. It's that he came in the flesh to dwell with you, to dwell with me. His desire in creating mankind was communion in the garden. Yet Adam and Eve sinned and departed from that union and fellowship with him. His desire and plan before the foundations of the world, according to Ephesians 1, was so that he could still redeem us. That plan of salvation required God to become flesh and to die for us vicariously. To be the second Adam, as Romans 5 would teach. God desires a relationship with us. That is truly a marvelous thought. 
the God of the vast universe. And I love every time I see a new picture from the James Webb telescope. They keep finding more problems in the theory of evolution and the Big Bang cosmology. They keep looking deeper into the heavens and the heavens keep declaring right back to them that this is a young earth and a God who created it. It is wonderful when science confounds the know-it-alls. He's the God of that vastness. He's also the God of the infinitely small. To the the tiniest of particles. That God of the vast and the small wants to know you individually. Jesus literally, when he was on this earth, says that God knows the very numbers of the hairs of your head. And some of us keep losing more to make sure he recounts them. But that's a God that knows you intimately. That's Emmanuel. The God of all things wants to be with you, and he wants to be with me. The marvel in Emmanuel begins then letter A with his wonderful holiness. If God wants to be with us, he wants to be with us not in our nature, but so that he can reveal his nature to us. God with us does not mean that he takes on our sinfulness and he participates in all of our wickedness. That is the problem with the modern Christian movement. They tell everybody they can continue in their sins and God is happy with them. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 and verse 1, God forbid. The word holy has two primary definitions. The first definition of holy or holiness refers to absolute moral purity and an uncompromised, unsurpassed standard of righteousness. God, who is incapable of error, untainted by sin, unrestrained by the laws of nature, and pure in all his ways, is the only one that is holy. He tells the Israelites so in the book of Leviticus. He tells Peter to write, Be ye holy, for I am holy holy, saith the Lord. That is who he is. Can you be God? Not without Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, you can be like God. You can take on his character and his nature into your own life. That's what Emmanuel means. That's the wonderful nature of his name. The second definition for holiness refers to a state of being set apart from the common for a specific use by Almighty God. Jesus was holy both in the sinless nature, but also in the purposeful nature in which he came. Jesus came to bring liberty. He came to bring light. He came to bring life and love to all who would believe in him. He, Jesus, demonstrates the holy and glorious nature of God's perfection lived out in human flesh. That's what he came to be with us. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 7 and verse 26 makes a wonderful statement of who Jesus was and is and what we ought to be in him. He says that Jesus was holy, harmless, and undefiled. That's a good definition of what it means that God is with us. If you are living holy and harmless and undefiled. Isaiah in his prophecy in chapter 7 or excuse me, chapter 9 and verse 7, states that Christ will order and establish His kingdom in judgment and in justice. The word judgment there in verse 7 means in discernment or in the decision-making. So here's the point. When God establishes His kingdom, and by the way, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, 
Sin has been paid for, but the power of sin has been broken. We are actually now new creatures created in Christ Jesus unto good works. We have the power of resurrection life in us if we've asked Jesus to save us from our sins. We then can act and be holy as he is holy. And so as we come to this, we find that in the kingdom of God, there is judgment. Let me ask you, what kind of judgments have you made this week? What has your decision-making process been? Well, you asked me to think about this last week and the unholy, unhealthy, and unhappy thoughts, and I'm still kind of stuck on that. I'm not sure what you've said since then. Good, then pick back up and listen again. God doesn't want you to live in defeat in your Christian life. He wants you to live in victory. The way you live in victory is commit to living holy. Emmanuel, God with us. If God is with us, then we can be like Him. You can do that. It's possible to be a happy Christian. The old song says, oh, it is wonderful to be a Christian. Well, is it? The name of Jesus first is wonderful before it's anything else in God's revelation. The second word that he says in chapter 9 and verse 7 is that the kingdom will be ordered and established not just in judgment, but also in justice. This means on an objective standard. It is not subjective to what you feel like is a good week. It's objectively what God says are good decisions and right choices and actions that are pleasing to him. The child given will be one who provides us with the ability to discern and do what God has designed mankind to do, and that is please Him, according to Revelation 4 and verse 11. In other words, we are holy as He is holy. John chapter 1 and verse 4 gives us this picture. If Genesis 1 is the revelation of how we all began in the world and creation, John 1 is a revelation of how the new life in Christ begins. Both of them are books of beginning, if you will. John chapter 1 and verse 4 says this, In him was life. That word life there literally has the concept in the original Greek of existence. In Christ was existence. And the existence, or that existence was the light or the glory. The word is a wonderful word here, light. It's where we get photosynthesis. It's the word photos in the word, in the old language. How many have had their Christmas pictures taken this year? Two of you, great. Jessica and I did. You'll be getting our cards here soon, right? None of you, no Christmas pictures at all? All right, well, thriving business that is, okay. You get Christmas photos from someone and it is a picture however glorious or inglorious it is at that time, it is a picture of your glory in that moment. I can tell you, by the way, the older our kids get, the better our family pictures become because we're not doing like this right before the picture's taken. Ah! Right? Stand still. Be quiet. Stand up straight. Don't talk. Smile. Don't do that. All right? We've gotten better at that now. It's the word photos. And so what he's saying is, and the existence of you was a photos, a reflection of the glory of men. We shine forth that existence. That's what God designed in us. And the only way that comes back into us is having a relationship with Him. The world marveled at the difference in the character and conduct of Jesus. Whether it was Joseph and Mary when He was a child, or the rabbis that He taught while He was still young, 
whether it's in his adult ministry, the religious crowd that would marvel at his wisdom, the wretched crowd who would marvel at his compassion, and the rest of the crowd who would note what he did in his miraculous power and in his presence. Whomever it was and whatever it was, they noted he was holy. My favorite story of all of the Gospels is John 8. Because you find all three sets of crowds around Jesus. The religious crowd hauls out a wretched crowd so that the rest of the crowd can see what's going on. Religion will never save you. All religion will ever do is haul you out and expose you just for how bad you are. A relationship with God will always save you. The religious crowd brings the harlot out and catches her in the very act, the Bible says. And they say, Jesus, she's worthy to be stoned. And Jesus essentially says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then goes to writing something in the sand. A wonderful message. Another time I'll preach it. But he's writing in the sand. Of course, he looks up and he looks at the woman. The, certainly a wretched lifestyle. And he says, hey, where are the people that condemned you? And thankfully, she said, not standing here with rocks, right? They they all left. And what does Jesus say to her? Yeah, he says, hey, look, where are those that condemned you? They're gone. Neither do I condemn you, period. Is that right? No, I think it's a semicolon if you go back and look in John 8. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. You've met me. Because you've met me, you should be different. Do you start to understand what Emmanuel means? It means holiness. If we struggle with making right choices, perhaps we ought to look inside and wonder if we've ever met Jesus at all. We find letter B. It's not just his wonderful holiness. It is his wonderful hope. That God would be with us gives everyone hope. It brings joy to the season, right? Isn't that the one of the catchphrases that we always hear? Jesus is the reason for the season. He is. Can I tell you a secret? That Jesus is the reason for every season. He's for winter and for spring and for summer and for fall, Christmas and Thanksgiving and Fourth of July. Jesus is everything we're supposed to be about. In Galatians 4, we find a little passage that tells us about His coming. But in the process, it shows to us the hope that we have because He came, because He is with us. It shows us His wonderful nature. In verse number 4, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law. For what purpose? To redeem them that were under the law. That word redeem just means to buy back or to rescue us. That we, oh, here's the secondary benefit, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Okay, so there's a change of state. There's a change of family. And because ye are sons, he goes on to say, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's one of the tender, compassionate statements that a child of that day would make to his parent. He concludes, Wherefore, thou thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son, if this is true, and it is, if you've received Christ, then an heir of God through whom? Christ. We have hope. 
The wonderful hope of Jesus is that he is our atonement, he is our adopter, and he is our advocate, I put in your notes. He is our atonement in the fact that the Son of God came in the flesh in order to be the Savior of mankind. First, it was necessary for him to be born under the law. All of us have failed to fulfill God's law. Christ came in the flesh under the law to fulfill it on our behalf. I don't have to fulfill the law because Christ did. Now, there is a new law called the law of Christ, which is another subject. But the old law of the Old Testament, it was death to us. You can read in Romans 6 and 7, and it tells us just how condemning and just how damning that old law was. It was not a law to life. It was a law to death. It told us how far short we fell in Romans 3 of the glory of God. We noted he is also our adopter in this passage of Scripture. We receive adoption, he said. God the Father receives us into the family, not upon our work, not upon our eagerness, but upon the work and the witness of Jesus Christ. He is the one who signs the papers of adoption for us. We receive then the Holy Spirit to help us now think as heirs and no longer as enemies. Thus, he is our advocate. An advocate is a comforter, an encourager, a friend. In the Koine Greek of this language in Galatians 4, it had a legal sense in which it was one who came forward on the behalf of and as the representative of another. Our hope then rests upon the atoning adoption from our advocate, Jesus Christ. We are no longer heirs of Adam or sons of Adam, but we are sons of God through Jesus Christ. He, according to 1 John 2 and verse 1, pleads our cause and case to God the Father. But in Galatians 4 and verse 7, the Spirit of God pleads God's cause and case to us. He advocates for how we ought to behave. If you don't feel filled can't get my words out. If you don't feel filled, there it is, with hope this morning, it's probably because your life is filled up with sin. The advocate of the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you need to stop doing that. Yeah, I'm talking directly to you this morning. That's what the Spirit of God's function in this world is. He is our advocate, just as Jesus is our advocate. He advocates on behalf of the divine realm and the kingdom of God. I'm reminded of the old hymn, He Hideth My Soul, in verse number 2. I believe we sang that one this morning as well. It says this, A wonderful Savior is Jesus, my Lord. He taketh my burden away. He holdeth me up, and I shall not be moved. He giveth me strength as my day, or as my sustaining presence in the day. This morning, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ then you should rejoice in that altogether He is wonderful for you. If you've not received Jesus Christ this morning, may I submit to you, He is a wonderful Savior and one that I would desperately have you meet. The wonderful truth is that the omnipresent one humbled himself by taking on humanity so that He might provide holiness and hope to any who would receive Him. God became man for the purpose of restoring our relationship with Him. That's what Christmas represents. Oh, how wonderful is our Savior. Perhaps we can only say in conclusion what the psalmist said about this wonderful truth in Psalm 118 and verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous. That word marvelous is the same word wonderful in our eyes. How wonderful. How good is our God.
Father, help us this morning.